Have you ever driven over Highway 17 into Santa Cruz? Try to imagine driving a team of six horses with a stagecoach full of passengers for harrowing 40 minutes with tight, twisting curves on treacherous dirt roads. For the first 20 years of California's history, aside from walking, the only mode of transportation after leaving the rivers or the coast was by stagecoach, wagon, pack mules, and horses. Stage drivers were the gold rush road warriors. The risky job in a treacherous era in a menacing country was not for the faint of heart. It was said that Wyatt Earp, Wild Bill Hickok, and Buffalo Bill Cody all had driven stagecoaches. Driving four to six horses in bad weather ranging from blistering sun to freezing rain and snow. Going down improvised roads, twisting over mountain passes, around cliffs, through dense forests, over streams, carrying passengers, supplies, mail, and gold into canyons with wild bear, mountain lions, thieving bandits and rattlesnakes. And they had to do it on time. A driver had to be good with a gun to keep their cargo safe and their passengers alive. For their skill and fearlessness, stage drivers were paid very well, and the best ones were known by name across California. A driver's uniform usually included long gauntlet gloves, a wide-brimmed, wide-awake hat with tall leather boots and a long linen duster with a light overcoat to help fend off the dust, rain, and wind. Each of the rugged individuals carried a whip, so stagecoach drivers were known as whips. They were also nicknamed Jehu from a biblical passage in Kings 9.20. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. Queens of the Mines features the authentic stories of gold rush women who blossomed from the camouflaged twisted roots of California. In this episode, we're taking a different approach than we've been doing normally. Today, we will meet one of California's most famous stage drivers and learn their fabulous story of economic self-determination and opportunity for free association. I am Andrea Anderson. This is a true story from America's largest migration, the Gold Rush. Queens of the Mines, Chapter 9. In the late spring of 1851, multiple fires, fueled by increasingly high winds, were burning thousands of buildings in San Francisco, its elevated wood plank sidewalks acting as extra fuel. The flames extended for over half a mile in length and were visible from the ships that were miles out to sea. Tens of millions of dollars in damage had been done. There was no insurance companies established, and nearly nothing remained of the city, only the sparsely settled outskirts. As the fires burned, Charlie Parkhurst was in Panama, crossing the Isthmus shortcut, overland. On the trail, 
he had befriended John Morton. Morton had the Morton Warehouse Company of San Francisco. And after getting to know Charlie, he recruited him to be a stagecoach driver once they arrived in California. He calls himself Charles Clifton, but passengers on board call him Thunderbolt. In the crowded passenger quarters, European traveler John Charles Dujot wrote of Charlie in his journal on the journey. He says the reason for passing under an assumed name was that he was an important witness in a case and wished to have nothing to do with it, adopting a false name to get out of the way. On the trip to Panama from Boston, Charlie's presence on board the R.B. Forbes seemed to be the main attraction. The passengers had found Charlie perplexing, fascinating several admirers. In short, he is a very queer fellow indeed. On a cool evening that summer, the 39-year-old Charlie adjusted his pleated shirt and his long gloves as he walked down the gangplank at the pier. The new city of San Francisco was hastily being rebuilt, and it was a sight to see and much to take in. Yet Charlie was ready to start work the next morning. Charlie worked in the developing city for Morton for less than a year when he decided to go north to Sacramento. He had a former boss from Georgia there, James E. Birch. At 21, Birch started a stagecoach service in the busy town as a driver with one wagon. And he was building several small stage lines known as the California Stage Company. Birch had given Charlie the idea to come to California. And he followed later saying, I aim to be the best damn driver in California. Charlie sauntered down the dusty main street in Sacramento, looking for Birch's establishment. Charlie had not seen his old friend since Birch left Georgia for California. When he found his shop, he stepped up onto the wooden path and swung the door wide open. Inside, John was in the middle of a hiring process, questioning several questionable potential drivers. Birch asked, How close could you allow the stage to get to a thousand foot drop and be sure the passengers would be safe? One man yelled, Two feet! Another said, Five inches! And a third boasted, I could make it with half the tire hanging over the edge! Charlie was repulsed. I'd stay as far away from the edge of that cliff as the hubs would let me and turned to head for the door. Charlie did not make it out of the building before Birch grabbed his shoulders from behind, shaking his old friend. The job is yours. Charlie was about 175 pounds and just five feet tall with lips stained from chewing tobacco. The stout man frequently slept with the horses, joking, I get along better with horses than folks. Charlie rose before each dawn to put his team in particular order, playing to each of the horse's strengths. 
As the sun began to rise, 50 or more stagecoaches and wagons would line up to load in their passengers. The latest news, the mail to be delivered, and the gold to be banked. And they headed for the mining towns and camps in the foothills and mountains. Charlie's entry into a small town would cause much excitement, and the children would run around chaotically and mob the driver, gladly accepting the candy he had ready for them. On occasion, he would pull double duty through the night in dangerous conditions in the rain and snow. When the roads were nearly impassable, he used mud wagons, driving regardless to the wild boom towns of Rough and Ready, Grass Valley, Stockton, Mariposa, Placerville, Santa Cruz, and the great stage route from San Jose to Oakland, earning double pay. It was said only a rare breed of men could be depended on to ignore the gold fever of the 1850s and hold down a steady job of grueling travel. In Redwood City, Charlie had stopped the coach to soothe the lead horse, Pete, who had for some reason become skittish. Charlie approached the horse from the carriage, just as a rattler in the trail shook its tail, startling Pete, who kicked Charlie square in the temple, costing Charlie an eye. Charlie developed a reputation as one of the finest stagecoach drivers on the West Coast. Despite being half-blind, he was the most dexterous and celebrated of the California drivers, and it was considered an honor to occupy the spare end of the driver's seat when the fearless Charlie Parkhurst held the reins. He spoke raspily, drank whiskey with the best of them, and could handle himself in a fist fight. He earned the nickname One-Eyed Charlie, but of course, not in his presence. From then on, he wore a black eye patch over his clean-shaven face. An odd choice for the era. Are you enjoying the podcast? Please make sure to rate review, and subscribe wherever you are listening. If you would like to donate to the continuation of this podcast, check out the donate button on queensofthemines.com or use Venmo to at queensofthemines. Okay, back to the story. James Savage was the first alleged non-Indigenous discoverer of the Yosemite Valley. In 1848, he claimed an area at an elevation close to 3,000 feet, where he discovered gold. The area was at first simply called Savage's Diggins. The camp had a huge oak tree landmark. The method of punishment for crime there was often hanging, and it was originally named garrote, a Spanish word for execution by strangulation. Savage's Diggins is now known as Big Oak Flat. And Garote is now known as Groveland. On a rainy spring a few years later, Charlie Parkhurst was on his way to the still new camp in his coach from Stockton. The rain had been coming down in sheets for the last three days. 
Wiping the rushing water from his face, Charlie guided the coach through the mud, the wheels almost sinking to the hubs. A stray man on the trail ahead waved Charlie down, stopping the stage. The man jogged to the coach and warned Charlie, yelling over the storm. He told the driver that this spring the thaw was extra heavy on the Tuolumne River and the upcoming bridge was in a shaky condition. The man insisted that Charlie did not drive over it. He tipped his hat at the stranger and cracked the reins. He was not scared of anything. Charlie and his team kept on until they approached the roaring, swollen stream. Moments later, the bridge just below Big Oak Flat revealed itself, nearly washed out. Time was of the essence. The stagecoach had one passenger with him, and the man pleaded with his driver to stop. Charlie clenched his teeth and tightened his grip on the reins. Like a natural, he viciously swung his long whip upon his team, and the stage dashed across the creaking structure, the planks trembling under horses' hooves and the coach's wheels. They took on the swollen river and the turbulent waters ripped the bridge away just as they reached the solid ground. Charlie's passenger removed his hat and wiped his brow. I thought we were goners for sure. The driver did not even look up from the road ahead of him when he said, Well, friend, I would never let that happen as I am particular about who I take a bath with. And that was the truth. In the 1820s, Ebenezer Bach owned a livery stable in Providence, Rhode Island, when he met 12-year-old Charlie Parkhurst, an orphan boy who was admiring his horses, on the streets of Worcester, Massachusetts. Bach was an encouraging fellow and took Charlie home, promising to make a man out of him. Charlie was anxious to learn all he could about horses, growing his understanding of them by carefully watching every move made by the stage drivers, who drove the stages into Worcester. The runaway earned his keep cleaning stalls, washing carriages, and scrubbing floors. He then graduated to learning the art of driving horse-drawn carriages, first one in hand, then two in hand, then four in hand, and eventually the crowning achievement of six in hand. Charlie prospered there, and a reputation was made, known as one of the best coachmen on the eastern seaboard. In Vermont in 1812, Mary and Ebenezer Parkhurst, a young couple, had three children, Maria, Charlotte, and Charles. After the sudden death of one of the children, the couple abandoned the other two. They were sent to an orphanage in New Hampshire, where they were raised under the care of an unkind man named Mr. Millshark. Mr. Millshark told them that men had a greater advantage over girls in the battle of life. And Charlotte, the youngest, became aware that women had few economic opportunities. 
She felt her only chance was to be a seamstress, laundress, teacher, or sex worker. So when she was 12 years old, she left Maria, her older sister, at the orphanage, stole a few pieces of boys' clothing, and ran away to Worcester, Massachusetts. Charlotte took on the name of her deceased brother, Charles, or Charlie. I am Andrea Anderson. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let's meet again next time when we continue the story of Charlie Parkhurst, the stage driver. Chapter 9, Part 2. It is not over. Right here on Queens of the Minds. All of a sudden, public and historians are recognizing that conflict history has been dismissed for far too long. Coming to light in the mainstream are important elements that are absolutely necessary for understanding American history. These elements have previously been downplayed or virtually forgotten. As we incorporate racial and ethnic conflict in the presentation of the American experience, we begin to understand how far we have come and how far we have to go. No matter how painful, we can only move forward by accepting the truth and owning it.
are gathering. I wrap my arms around the brocades as lift parts get swept away. The deaf ears don't hear me say, Take me with you. Queens of the Minds was written, produced, and narrated by me, Andrea Anderson. The theme song in San Francisco Bay is by DBUK. You can find the links to their music, tour dates, and merchandise, as well as links to all of our social media and research at queensofthemines.com.